Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to episode 117, the final episode of 2019 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and uh, before we get into today's podcast, I just want to uh, thank each and every one of you uh, for listening over the past year. Uh, it's been a great year. We reached uh, the 100 episode mark, and uh, that was with uh, Jonathan Power, uh, my hero of, of the squash, and uh, it was a great, uh, great year. We had several uh, incredible guests and uh, looking forward to uh, 2020 and breaking the 200 mark uh, this uh, upcoming year. So uh, again, thanks to all the guests who came on uh, this year and to everyone who's been listening uh, over the over the past year and, and even before that. I really appreciate your support and we're going to keep it going. It's a passion project of mine, really enjoying it. And uh, episodes uh, in 2020 are are, are lining up already as we speak, so I'm really looking forward to that. Now today, uh, on our final episode, I don't do enough of this. Uh, we've got a sports uh, scientist and researcher who's been working at the Scottish uh, Sports Performance Centre and who's worked closely with the squad, Scottish national team for the past seven years, Neil Gibson. Uh, no relation to me, but uh, uh, he's just re- uh, produced, uh, I think it was about a year or so ago, a research paper on physical preparation for elite level squash players, and that's in the Strength and Conditioning Journal, and he breaks that down for us. Uh, we talk about some of the more esoteric uh, elements of his research paper at least esoteric to me I'm not uh, up in terms of uh, all of the the aspects that he he discusses there but he breaks it down uh, for us uh, for for the layman as well and for the average squash player he is focused a lot on uh, mostly on uh, elite level squash but I think what he has to say in terms of uh, high performance training and uh, You'll hear about it in in the podcast. What he has to say can be uh, can be tweaked, and we can uh, utilize the research that he's put together for our, for ourselves. So I know you're going to uh, enjoy this one with Neil Gibson on the uh, strength and conditioning of elite level squash players, which we can apply to our own games. Episode 117, the final episode of 2019. Enjoy it. Hello, Neil. Hi. How you doing? Hey. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yourself? Good, good. Happy New Year uh, to you and season's greetings and all that. Thank you very much. You're you're in Dubai, is that right? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm just north of Dubai in the emirate of uh, Ras Al Khaimah, which uh, means the, Uh uh, uh, translated means top of the tent. Uh, So we're at the top of the tent here in the UAE, which is about an hour's north of uh, Dubai, but it's not that far away. And uh, so just want to say uh, thanks for, for agreeing to do this. Uh, I listened to your pod, your episode on um, the Scottish Squash uh, podcast, and uh, I thought it was quite interesting. Read your research paper, and um, uh, thanks to Paul, he sent me, <laughs> sent me a copy, and uh, it was quite, uh, quite useful and quite interesting. So I think uh, there definitely definitely some value there to the uh, I wouldn't maybe not layman but the you know the squash enthusiast uh, out there in terms of what you uh, you know what you're trying to do and what you've uncovered in in your research yeah no well hopefully, hopefully I think having spoken to Paul he said that the there was some good feedback after he, he put the Scottish squash podcast out. Um, and it, you know the kind of that paper was a, was really a culmination of 
seven years working with the Scottish squash athletes and um, just trying to sort of pull together what I felt that I'd learned along the way. And uh, it was quite a nice way to just kind of, I've not ended my involvement altogether, but to kind of draw a line under under the, the period of doing that after the after the Gold Coast Games. Right. Right. Just uh, just for, for the listeners here, uh, I'm speaking today, uh, episode 117, which just happens to be the final episode of 2019 with uh, Neil Gibson. No relation. Uh, I'm not. I'm pretty sure we're not related. Could be. Could be. But uh, uh, Neil's a sports scientist and researcher. He's been working, as he said, for the last uh, seven years, I believe, with the uh, with the Scotland Sports Performance Centre and within that uh, with the Scottish national team who's uh, coached by, uh, who've been coached by Paul Bell and he's been working closely with Paul and uh, he's done uh, a lot of research on physical preparation for elite level squash players and uh, I think a lot of what he he's done and, and the research there would be quite uh, interesting to uh, to to delve into a little bit and maybe bring it, uh, like I said earlier, maybe down to some layman's terms once we uh, get into the nitty gritty of, of it and then uh, try to see how we can apply it. Uh, I'm sure it can be applied uh, to anyone who wants to be competitive in, in the game. So th- thanks a lot, Neil, for, for joining me today. No, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So uh, first of all, just in terms of, uh, you know, backstory, I, I kind of laid it out there. I think, uh, yeah, you've been with the Scotland Sport Performance Centre for a while now. And prior to that, you've been, you've been working with uh, other professional and high-level uh, uh, athletes in sports. So uh, just give us a bit of background um, in terms of your, you know, your, your background in, in sports at, at this uh, elite level. So I, um, I studied in Sheffield. I did my undergraduate and postgraduate masters at Sheffield Hallam University um, before working for the English Institute of Sport for uh, just under 12 months in Manchester, which was a great job. I um, was able to learn a lot from some really experienced practitioners who've gone on to do some you know, very impressive jobs in, in world sport. Um, from there, I, I moved up to Scotland to work in professional football for uh, about eight seasons and was fortunate enough, fortunate enough after that to be given a, a, a role at a university, head at what university, to develop the sports science services and, and applied practice along with some research. Um, in the process of, of doing that job, we, we were successful in, in bidding for, for capital funding to build the country's first national performance centre for sport, which is called Orion, and is based oh, yeah. on camp at Heriot Watt. Um, so after we, we started that process around 2012, and we opened in 2016. Uh, so that was a great experience for me in terms of the design and, and delivery of a, of, a, of a training facility for a range of different sports. So we we house Scottish Football Association, a professional football club, the Scottish Rugby Union. We have a number of rugby professional rugby union teams that use us along with the Scottish Institute of Sports. Um, alongside that I worked with uh, the Scottish squash team at the 2014 and the 2018 games, sorry, um, supporting them at various European championships in between um, and trying to combine that with, um, with some research primarily with, with team sport athletes but also as you mentioned with, with the squash players to try and understand in more detail really what 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 is the training that we do what is the effect on on the physical performance of the players and and how much is 
did enough. Uh, and it's a question that gets banded around quite a lot in, in many different sports. You know, have we done enough? Uh, are we strong enough? Are we fit enough? And I guess some of the research that was involved in this, but also in, involved in my doctorate, was was to try and establish that so that we could prescribe and program exercise for the for the athletes in a more effective manner. Yeah, the, the prescript, uh, that's, that's the, uh, the essence of what I got from, from your paper is that, uh, you know, there's a certain approach that you should take. It's not necessarily um, uh, high volume. It's more than that. It's uh, these days, particularly with the, the rule changes, which we'll get into uh, later on. Uh, that, that's just my, I'm not a scientist uh, or anything, but uh, it's more high vol, uh, less high volume, more high uh, intensity given the rule changes, but you, you can probably correct me on that later on. Um, yeah, I think, I, think that's, I think that's a fair point. And, and you, know, you mentioned the rule changes. And I think there's been a number of different research papers around, um, around mainly around athletics and, and triathlon that suggested that when we don't structure our training or when we don't look at the fidelity of what we're doing, that kind of the training that we do comes into this beige zone where it's not particularly hard it's not particularly easy and we don't see the the undulating intensity across the week or across the macro cycle um and we you know if we get into that we could be replicating training that is not necessarily making us any fitter mm. um and may actually be kind of reducing our freshness for want of a better term for the next tournament yeah no i, I can remember i mean back when i used to train a lot that would have been back in the uh, the mid 80s the late 80s i mean it was all court sprints and we we did hundreds and hundreds of court sprints and uh, there didn't you know just seemed you go out there and you you do it and once you're done you you feel okay i've done that uh, that that must be good but uh, there was no method to the madness i, I don't think it was just uh, ticking that box that i'd done it and uh, i think you kind of go into that a little bit you touch on that a little bit in your research yeah, and I think we, you know, that was something that there's been some really good quotes from prominent quote, sorry, really good quotes from prominent coaches recently that I think have encapsulated that. There's a there's a book called Das Reboot, which is about the um, the German football system and how that was reinvented. And there's a there's a quote in there from Jurgen Klinsmann that that mm. describes the fact that he doesn't want to know how fast his players are. He just wants to know that they can sprint when they need to sprint. Um, right. Right. And then Eddie Jones mentioned something after the World Cup, the Rugby World Cup, and he, you know, he, he spoke about players not having enough autonomy and having all the decisions made for them in training. And they were never really asked to comment or to input into the training process. Say, Do you think you've done enough? Is what we are doing working? And that was something that you know kind of resonated with me. And I, I feel like we, we there's definitely space to for scientists, researchers, practitioners to work more closely with athletes to understand the perceptions of training mm. and to understand whether the athletes know, you know, to differentiate when to work hard versus actually when it's best to take a, take a rest and to, and to recoup some energy. Um, and on that note, myself and a colleague wrote an article, um, an online article, which is called Don't Wait for the Beep. And it's a take on the <laughs> traditional, yeah. um, traditional beep test where you know you, you are told when to run, told when to rest. And yeah. as we know, that match play in any sport is not like that. Um, so how, how can we help athletes develop a, a greater decision-making capacity to know when to work hard 
versus when to take it easy rather than just being told by a coach, work really hard for the next 30 seconds and then have 40 seconds off. Is that paper uh, online anywhere? Is it in or a, a journal article that can be accessed? It is. Uh, it, um, it, it's, on a, it's on an online journal, uh, Sport Performance Science Reports, um, which, which is, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not sure that's the exact title, but I think if okay. people Google that title, um, uh, they will find that website and, and it is, it's, it's available for free on there. It's a pretty short oh, read. Myself and uh, Robert McCunn wrote that I think, last year. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, that, that'll be, uh, I've, I have access to online journal articles at the, the uh, college I work for. So hopefully I can, I can access that easily now. Um, now your name came up uh, before I was, before Paul and I came, became acquainted, uh, your name came up in my episode with Olivia Blatchford-Klein, and she attributed, uh, she mentioned your name when she attributed her higher levels, of her, her, her improved uh, performance and increased uh, fitness levels to you and, and what you'd done at the Scottish Training uh, Center. I guess she'd been there with, uh, with Alan, her husband, and you've been working with, with some of them, uh, some of the top players in the game for a while. So I'm just wondering, uh, you know, having worked with other uh, sports athletes in, in football and rugby, uh, how would you describe the differences between uh, those athletes uh, uh, at the top levels and, and, a, and a top level uh, squash player? If there are differences or similarities. Yeah, I think one of the things that I think is most striking about squash is that there's no, the, the, the players at the top of the game on both the male and female side are quite, heterogeneous so we see quite a big difference in the body types of the top players so if you look at the top 10 athletes on both sides there's not um you couldn't throw a blanket over how their body shapes are made up or <laughs> yeah. they seem to be able to play the game some with perhaps a, a greater level of speed and, and explosiveness some who've got a greater level of perhaps strength and ability to hold their posture and, and play more matches um in other sports I've worked in, maybe rugby, for example, that we, we, we tend to see a, a greater similarity across the players than, than I did in squash. Um, mm. And I think that was a good eye-opener for me in terms of there are, there are a number of different ways to be fit enough to play. Yeah. It's about max, maximising your, maximizing your strengths and limiting your weakness rather than trying to get everyone up to a, an accepted standard that doesn't exist. Um, right, right. And that was a really nice opportunity for me to work closely with individual athletes to try and tailor the training to what they needed rather than prescribing something that was more generic. Yeah, I think that's that's really true. I mean, you look at, like you said, you look at the top 10 players and everybody sort of seems to have a different physical makeup and also a different, uh, the way they apply their strengths. Their their strengths are all sort of different as well. So in terms, you know, one guy might be super fit one guy might be super fast, super skillful, et cetera. And uh, they're all different. So in that regard, I guess that, that's kind of what you're, you're getting at there, isn't it? Absolutely. And one of, my, one of the first Europeans that I attended with the, with the Scotland team, I remember watching, I think Alan was playing Gregory Gauthier. Um, and I watched okay. him from you know, the top of the court. And, and you know, his speed over the ground was exceptional and his ability to get into those long lunges positions, still retrieve the ball and get back to the tee. It seemed to me to be his kind of, um, that was his strength. It was his way of playing the game that, that differed. For example, when I watched James Wilstrop or, or Nick Matthew or 
a range of or, or Rosner later on for Germany that you know, they all had different ways of being able to play the sport at that level um, in the same way that working with Alan with Greg um, and, and Olivia you know they all have different strengths it's how do we make the training how do we get the best bang for our buck so that no training session is wasted it all contributes to their ability to win when they right. need to Right, and I guess that that's sort of the uh, the beauty of this research. You mentioned in, in your paper that there isn't uh, very. I mean, obviously squash. I mean, I I think I might have been the second ever or third ever squash podcast. So just given the sport being niche in and of itself, there's not going to be a lot of research out there, anyways, when it comes to squash. But your your paper might be one of the first or one of you know one of very few that deal with this kind of thing. So. Are you sort of just, are you, do you feel like you're laying the groundwork with all of this uh, research that you're doing? And, and in that, in that way, is it kind of, I guess that's a challenge for you, isn't it? Breaking ground on, on that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the, the, you know, there has been, you know, there's been some really good research around squad. Um, some notable work around performance analysis that was done from Newark University, breaking the game down into different components and looking at how many shots are taken from different zones on the court um, which I think was very informative to the England squash program um, there's also been a lot of research with different tests of physical capacity in squash how do we test players to see if they are fit enough um, and that, that 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 happens across sports I think with the paper that we published in um, strength and conditioning journal what we were trying to do is highlight some areas that probably do require some further further thought around what are the most effective training programs? How do we track players over time, especially when they're remote? If you're on the if you're on the world tour, you may only be at your training base for a couple of months of the year. But if you've got someone working on your program, you still need to have some objective markers to say, is what we are doing working? Is it meeting the aims that we set ourselves? Um, hopefully we've provided some some examples of that in the paper of how it can be done, but also hopefully kind of enthused other people working within the sport to think about how they might be able to do that and contribute themselves to the literature which you know over time will will will, will for sure help the sport and help those work in the sport make the players fitter stronger better on court yeah uh, definitely now i'm going to try to get to get through some of the what i found to be interesting parts of your, your research paper which I, I found it to be all of it to be quite intriguing, but uh, as a layman, please bear with me if, I, uh, if I'm not uh, expressing my, my thoughts correctly. But <laughs> uh, in a nutshell, your research on, on heart rate, uh, VO2 max, and the lactate values demonstrate the necessity of well-developed and real and uh, well-developed aerobic fitness. So basically what you're saying is that uh, for the serious squash player, regardless of your age, developing aerobic capacity is one of the pillars of a, a solid squash player uh, overall is that kind of in a nutshell what you what you'd be getting at there yeah i think it's i'm not sure that you necessarily need to put a value on that to say that you need to have a avo2 max of x mils per kilogram per minute to be a top squash player um or that you know, there's a set criteria that you need to achieve in terms of lactic threshold. However, if you want to be at the top level and play on the tour, you're going to need to play multiple matches across multiple days with limited recovery. 
Right. Um, especially when you look at tournaments like the European Championships or the World Teams, it just happened where you, you play two matches in a day. Um, so to, to underpin that and to underpin a player's ability to recover, they absolutely need to have a well-developed aerobic capacity to achieve that. The Commonwealth Games is another prime example of that with players um, playing a multi Multiple matches across across the two weeks in singles, doubles, and mixed doubles, and then many of them having a very short turnaround before playing again in Egypt. So, whilst the aerobic capacity is important to be able to maintain an intensity across those matches and those games, it's also important in helping the players recover when you have a schedule that is give or take now twelve months of the year. Right. No, absolutely. Now, uh, something I, I mentioned uh, in the intro was this uh, this thing about uh, high intent, high intensity versus uh, high volume. Um, and I guess with the rule changes, uh, um, as a you know, as a squash uh, player who trains, I tend now to focus more on intensity and uh, quality over over volume. And is that something that's kind of in, inherent in what what you're, I think it's inherent in the research that you've done and in, in, in the message that you're trying to uh, deliver in the end. Yeah, and, and one of the things that we found, and, and largely from using the heart rate data, that we, we struggled in training to replicate the type of intensity that the players were experiencing in match play. Now, if you're a top 10 player and you go into most tournaments and, and play three or four matches, you get into the semi-finals and the final, that's not so much of an issue because that is in itself a training stimulus where you're getting a reasonable degree of volume, but you're also getting the intensity in it. If you're a player who, would, who, a player who is going to tournaments, playing one match, maybe two, and then having an extended period off, if you like, from match play until your next tournament, you need to find a way of adding a component into your training that is, if not replicating, coming close to replicating the type of intensity that you're experiencing in match. Um, there's some research in Australia, one of my old colleagues, Rich Johnson, who talks about preparing for the worst case scenarios. Mm. Um, and, and the worst case scenario, I guess, in squash and give or take would be having to play five or six matches over the course of four to five days in, in, right. a, in, a, in, a, in a huge event. Um, so finding a way that we can put those, put that into training to see how the players respond to me was a, was, was a key component that we were missing and players were missing if they were going out of a tournament after only one match or two matches. I guess um, they would, I guess a player and his coach and his team, they, they would have to forecast that, wouldn't they? They, they probably realize, you know, this, this event has that uh, the opportunity of that happening, or this is a team event where we've got mixed doubles, doubles, singles all this stuff so they, they could probably uh, forecast that within the, the the schedule that they have for the year that's right and you know you start to have a plan a which is you get to the final well done the plan b which is you get knocked out here and we need to supplement with one or two sessions or plan c which is you know we, we get a bad result we go out in the first round and we need to supplement that with four to five sessions which replicates the tournament um, and especially when players are, are traveling quite large distances to play in some of the competitions, to me, you need to maximize the time you're there, irrespective of whether you are in the final or semi-final. There's no point flying six, seven hours, playing a match and, and thinking about coming home. Um, to me, there are times in the season where you want to try and put yourself through the tournament regime, even if you get knocked out early. Right. Now, um, 
you mentioned in, in your paper, uh, now this is probably very simplistic, uh, a simplistic question on my part and maybe I'm missing a lot of it, but uh, the, you talk about the max uh, heart rate of a squash, elite level squash player being, uh, I guess, 80 to 90% of capacity, I guess. In terms of, so in terms of the elite level squash training or even for, you know, the competitive club level player, or high level player of the club, what sort of uh, implications does this have uh, on training and on preparation uh, based on, on your findings? Well, <clears throat> firstly, the, 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 we generally consider, you know, when we exercise for periods above 80% of our heart rate maximum, we generally associate that with the type of training that is going to improve aerobic capacity, whether that's whether we measure that in terms of lactate threshold, which is a little bit more trainable, or VO2 max. So there's an element of to improve your general aerobic capacity, you need to be spending time above 80 to 85% of your maximum power rate in training. So that's one part of it. The second part is we see from match play that we spend extended periods of time above that intensity. Definitely. So we need, yeah. <laughs> we, I, we need I'm to get, I mean, I, I, mean I, I can do, I do the, the really troubling thing for, for me, I mean, I'm, I used to be very competitive, but you know, now I'm in my 50s. But, you know, these days um, when I get on court, uh, I'm, I've got my heart rate up, up there and it's there for an extended period of time. And, and it just feels like, uh, like I'm not really used to dealing with that situation. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's where the training comes in. And, and, and later on in the paper, we talk about continuous rallies. And for us, continuous rallies were, were a modality for us to, in, to get, to increase the physiological load of better players when they were playing against less skilled players. Yeah. So we were looking for periods from six to 12 minutes where we were pushing players up above 85% of their maximum to replicate a match play. If we put them on court with a less, one less skilled opponent, that was tricky. But if we rotated the less skilled opponent every 45 to 60 seconds, they were relatively fresh while the player we were training was just getting more and more tired. Right. And we were getting the physiological response we were looking for to make those positive changes in, in aerobic capacity. Yeah, I like, I like some of the, you had some uh, interesting ideas there. There was that, the, the continuous play, I think you called that, uh, you referred yep. to that as continuous play. And then, uh, you know, I, I was just thinking as well, if you're doing sort of solo training, uh, may, maybe I would do one set of a circuit, a difficult circuit training that might get my heart rate up there pretty high, then go on and do uh, part of my solo training and then go back and do the second uh, uh, set of the, the circuit and then come back on court. And that, that yeah. way you're dealing with uh, accuracy under duress. Kind of. That's right. Yeah. And it, it comes back to the central tenet of all training that you have to go into each session with an aim, that you have an aim for the, the macro cycle, an aim for the meso cycle, uh, for the micro cycle, and also an aim for the session. That we don't just go on court to train, we go on court to train for a purpose. And the purpose will then give us an indication of how long we should work for, how long we should have off, the intensity of that training, where it sits within the week, where our quality sessions are. Uh, and players probably, you know, if you have a week or a couple of weeks where you're not playing any matches, but you want to improve your high intensity, high intensity capacity, you probably only need two sessions a week where you are really pushing into that. Let, let me ask, sorry, Neil, let, let me, uh, just came to me here in a sudden. Um, I, 
we're talking elite squash. Let, let's look at um, a club level guy, for example. Uh, I've got a, I've just gotten over the weekend. Maybe I wasn't playing squash on the weekend, had a bit of R&R on the weekend. Then I start my social squash or competitive squash uh, maybe on a, on a Monday. So that, that would be akin to uh, like a, an elite level guy coming off a weekend of squash tournament. Um, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I would kind of tweak my, uh, my, my training for, the, for that Monday session, just kind of ease my way into it or, or, or go, go, at it, uh, go at it hard on Monday. Yeah, I think so. I think again that the 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 trick there is in the what is the aim? Are you are you looking for it to be an easy session? And and in which case you need some sort of metric to measure that. Um, you you might use heart rate, and you might say for this session I don't really want to go above seventy percent of my max. I want it to be an easy skill related session, which gives me the recovery that I need to be able to have a, a more intense session the day after or the day after that. Yeah, yeah. Alternative. Well, yeah. Sorry. You might yeah. think actually, I want a real. I want. I want to give myself a good session, a high intensity session, and again, you can use similar metrics to check afterwards. Well, did I achieve that? I said I wanted to work hard, but actually, I was falling into that beige zone that it wasn't easy, but it wasn't really hard either. So it, it's quite fatiguing, but it's not giving you the bang for your buck. Um, so really, that the metrics that we use, whether it's heart rate or whether it's a session rating perceived exertion. They're only useful if we go into the, the session of the block with an intended aim where we can check back and say, well, did we achieve that based on the data we've got afterwards? Yeah, no, interesting. Um, so, so what I'm thinking is uh, may, maybe I go in on, on a Monday, work more on, uh, on skill stuff, maybe a little bit of uh, fitness, fitness work, and then, then intensify it as the week goes on. But there, but that's a fine line, isn't it? Because if you if you tire yourself and then you go in and try to to work on technical stuff, you're you're going to sacrifice the 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 technical accuracy. So you need you you need to throw in a day, like you said, where you're it's not so intense, and then follow that. So it's all about sort of the way you schedule and the way your your body reacts to uh, the training plan that you put into yeah. place, and then you have to tweak it, I guess, later on, right? Absolutely, and we we found that with some of the players in Scotland that when we when we when we were putting together a preparatory period for a tournament, some players required a longer taper, some players required a shorter taper, some players actually did better when you didn't give them any time off at all going into the tournament. Alan Klein, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Alan, Alan, yeah. Alan would be someone who springs to mind when yeah. I think about. Um, so finding a routine for each person finding a routine that works for them some people might like to take the day off before other people might take this the two days off before and have a, a good session an intense but short session the day before they play yeah but that again it comes back to having a you know for the recreational player keeping a training log whether that's heart rate or rating of perceived exertion or, or another metric that they can look and say well were, what were the spikes in my week? Where was I really working hard, if anywhere? Yeah. Where was I had my? Where did I have my easy sessions, and how did that make me feel going into the tournament? Bearing in mind that, as we said earlier, some tournaments, even as a recreational player, you might go into it and think, "I'm not going to play many matches here." Um, so there's a balance between if it's a tournament and you think I don't have much chance here, I'm probably going to play a match. You might have a harder week. 
if it's a tournament where you really look, you know, I really want to peak here, I want to perform at my best, you're probably going to want to have a couple of days in the lead up to that with relatively short sessions that are lower on volume but slightly higher intensity to, to take you into that in, in good right now now i was just thinking in terms and you mentioned this in 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 your paper uh in terms of sort of evaluating where you are anaerobically or or your recovery your heart rate recovery you suggest not you know not doing something com that completely exhausts you i forget the term for that what's that called when you max out or something right uh that completely exhausts you 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 uh suggest the 4k uh 4k run one percent gradient uh 14 minutes is that right and then you take your heart rate at right after and then sick then after one minute yeah, so it, <clears throat> there's been quite a lot of research in team sports around this idea of sub-maximal assessments of fitness, yeah. essentially because we, you know very few opportunities for, for athletes at any level to, to push themselves to volitional exhaustion, whereby that is a training session itself that requires preparation and recovery. Um, so what, what we proposed in squash was a, a four-minute run on the treadmill at one percent gradient at 14 kilometers four minutes yeah not 14 yeah okay yeah. <laughs> um, so re relatively short relatively yeah. non-fatiguing and we looked at what we do is track the heart rate at four minutes and also track how how quickly the heart rate comes down at one two and three minutes post assessment um We've actually just we've just had a paper accepted in another journal looking at the reliability of that assessment in in team sport players. But mm -hmm. generally, we would think if if you're changing your heart rate by more than three minutes at the end of the four minutes, so if your heart rate comes down, we would suggest that that's an indication improved fitness. Right. Yeah, and I get. I mean, and again, this is more just to assess where you are, where your fitness levels are. It's not shouldn't be deemed part of your training per se right that's right this is very much a, a tool to monitor your progress and and what we do see is we do see quite big deviations over time in these metrics yeah so over the course of the season we you know we tend to see changes if players have gone through a fairly heavy training block um and we also see changes if they've had a bit of a rest but what we are essentially looking for if they go into big tournaments is for the for them to have a lower heart rate at the end of the four minutes, so we say they're fitter, and also for them to be recovering more, so we would hope that they would be fresh. Right on. Neil, just uh, one second. I've got to turn the light on. It's gotten dark here. Just a second. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay. All right, Neil. Sorry about that. I just uh, just back with you now here. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, now, one, one of the things you also mentioned, sort of, I think, towards the end of your paper, you talk about the technology that's now available, uh, 
not only to, to high end, you know, to uh, high performance centers like the one you worked in, but to even to the average squash player who can bring it in to the court on his watch and monitors progress. Uh, so you discuss a bit about what you call the micro technology. And we also have uh, these days, the PSA's usage of the heart rate monitors and the, the court coverage technology. So yeah. Uh, what sort of, um, obviously there's value to all of this, but um, is there, have uh, you talked about longitudinal studies and things like that, that would be of value. Is there something there that's in the works with regard to, to this? Because it seems to me like with the PSA and what they're doing, I'm not sure if they're collecting data or if people have approached them about collecting that data uh, or not, but it just seems there, there's a bit yeah. of value to that uh, there. Absolutely. I think that the challenge with microtonology or GPS data, as people might commonly know it, is that it doesn't work indoors. And it's only in the last couple of years whereby the technology has been developed so that we can start to get metrics like speed, velocity of movement uh, from indoor sports. And I think that one of the really exciting and interesting areas for us to, to, to explore in squash is, is the mechanical loading that the, that the game involves. And, are the players who are now as, as squash fans, we, we will watch the game and we'll see players who seem to be more efficient um, at lunging and playing the shots. We mentioned before Gregory Gauthier, uh, James Wilson has a lovely way of lunging in and coming back. There are other players who are, are more powerful into those lunges. Um, how, you know, does that have any impact on injury instance, for example? Mm. Does it have, implications as to how we help players recover after matches based on the mechanical loading that they experience in match play. Um, and the microtechnology through things like player load, um, which is a metric that the catapult units uh, give out, has been used to some extent in that way in team sports, but I think there's huge value in looking at that in the sport of squash to understand in more detail the the, the changes in neuromuscular function and, and how that relates to mechanical loading within the games. Yeah, de yeah, definitely. Uh, there, and there's just so much um, value to all of that. Hopefully uh, at the end of the day, at some point, uh, probably someone like yourself and your colleagues will be able to, uh, to tap into uh, to the PSA and what they're doing there, maybe work, work with them and, and uh, uh, use the, uh, yeah, the data that they're producing to, to create something. I think that would be a great study to do. And again, if you've got that longitudinal data and you can start to look at that in terms of potentially injury incidents, there may be scope to think about how best to structure players' training mm. so that they aren't overloading certain movements or overloading yeah, that, certain That's patterns. interesting. You know, there seem to be a, like a rash of, uh, of serious injuries in, in, at the top level of the game over the last couple of years, uh, Gregory Gaultier being one of them, but several other players, uh, particularly the adductor area. That, that, uh, now, I'm not sure if that has any, it's the speed of the game, obviously, and what they're doing on court. It's incredible, but uh, maybe this type of research could help uh, sort of reduce the what's going on there right now. Yeah, and I think you know, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the first step is to use that data, use that research to just develop our understanding of what the demands of the game are. Mm. So, especially when we are coaching or training younger athletes, it, what we really want to know is what are the demands of the top level. How do we help? 
young players or aspiring senior players break into the top 100, top 50, top 10? What, what are we trying to prepare them for? Um, and I think in other sports, we're probably a wee bit further down the line in our understanding of that. I think there's a bit of a way to go there in squash. Yeah, and, and squash, squash is such a dy- I mean, such a different. Dy- I guess maybe it's akin to uh, to football, uh, uh, European uh, soccer. I guess uh, football uh, uh, in that way. But but I think it's just stopping and starting, just a, a totally different uh, dynamic on the court. Which you know, I guess you would need the the data in order to uh, to assess what's going on. Yeah. And, and, and again, you know, then is that, is that something that we can improve or is it something that if we know that there is a high degree of loading for certain players because of the powerful lunges they're executing, what is the neuromuscular uh, response to that? And we can test that through things like the counter movement jump, which we mentioned in the paper. Right. And how do we tailor recovery practices? What is that again? There, there were a couple of terms that you used there. I've got another one here just in a, in a second. Uh, but the, the, what, the counter movement jump, what, what exactly is that, Neil? So the counter movement jump is, is a jump in place where you, um, you bend, bend at the hips and knees and you jump as high as you can with the, with the intention of landing in the same spot on a, on a jump mat or a false platform. Um, And there are a number of different metrics that you can take from that. And there's been some fantastic research, largely from Australia, that have looked at that um, in AFL and other team sports as to how different types of training affect athletes' ability to produce force and how quickly they can produce force in this counter-movement jump. Mm. And then can we use that as a monitoring tool to look at the impact of longitudinal training but also to look at the effect of recovery practices. So if we give a day off or two days off, if we use some pool-based recovery, does that help us recover quicker? And that type of information is crucial when we think about Commonwealth Games, World Teams, European Championships. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting. And there was another uh, term that, that really caught my eye it was the, the rating of perceived exertion. <laughs> I'd like to like what exactly uh, I mean it's self-explanatory obviously but but what are you getting at when you're when you're looking into uh, the rating of perceived exertion because I perceive myself to be exerting lots of energy uh, when I train but maybe I'm not yeah so <laughs> the, 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 there are a couple of validated scales that we can use for this the first one runs from zero to ten uh, which is a scale that we use post-exercise um, and there's another scale, the CR10 scale, um, that, that runs from 6 to 20. Sorry, CR20. Uh, and both of those are validated scale, scales for athletes to report how hard they find the exercise or how much exertion they're, exert, they're, they're applying. The scales have anchor points on them, and you can a quick Google of, of those terms. We'll, we'll throw up the scales uh, through the internet. Yeah. Um, and what you can do then in terms of the session RPE, if you're using the zero to 10 scale, you can multiply your rating of the session, let's say that's six, by the number of minutes that you train for, which okay. gives you a global value of intensity for the session. Right. And what, what you're then looking to do is to look back and say, after a one, two, three, four week cycle of training, did I see undulations in that session RPE, or was I just training intensely all the time? Probably not great. Or was I just having lots of easy sessions? Also not great. We want to see sessions, training sessions that to some extent 
have an intensity closer to a match, followed by periods of recovery and, a, and a, I guess a range in the training stimulus. Um, now that's, that's, a, that's a measure that can be used in isolation, but it could also be used with um, heart rate and it yeah. could also be used to, to enhance mm. our understanding of the training response if we used it in conjunction with, for example, four-minute submaximal test. Yeah. So what? What? So th th this is something that that we can all uh, apply, and maybe even uh, you know just include this kind of stuff in, like you said earlier, your your training log and and things like that. Yeah, and I would encourage all players, irrespective of their age and or ability, to 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 do. You know, I think the four-minute test is a great one to use. Um, and if you can you do that like some, once a week, that, that four minute test or once every two weeks or I think maybe once a month, just once, once every month. four to six weeks, I would say. Yeah. Okay. So not too onerous, but be able to look back and say, at what point in the season did I make my biggest improvements in fitness? I.e. my end heart rate came down. Right. And also I was able to recover quickly. What did my training look like in the preceding period? And that will start to help you understand what type of training works works for the individual. You know, so it's not very onerous, not very time-consuming. Um, and again, if you're using things like Polar or another heart rate device, the online apps now allow you to track all that online and, and review it. So it's it's pretty easy now for people to take ownership of of their training structure and to experiment. Like you know, as we said before, there's no one way to to be great at squash. So yeah. try different ways of training, try different um, schedules, schedules of intensity within your week and, and see what works best. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You've been, uh, you've been great with your time, Neil. I just want to um, ask you one more quick question. And this, we're going back to something we talked about earlier about the, uh, the pro game. Uh, now, in terms of the pro game itself, when you look at the top players, we talked about it earlier, you hear a lot about, uh, it's sort of it's almost cliche now to to for players to focus on their super strength and that that somehow will uh, will will bring them to a, a higher level. Guys like, uh, for example, Paul Cole and Joel Macon come to mind in terms of the physicality and the fitness side of things. But when I look at the guys, the the, the guys that you know who are going to be there at the end of the day, the the uh, M Mohammed El Sherbagis, Ali Farag, the Kareem Abdul-Gawad, they, they just seem to have a little bit of everything. Uh, I'm not sure what, you know, I, I don't even think they have super strengths. They have everything. So when it, when it comes to guys like a, like a Joel Macon or a Paul Cole who seem to, I mean, they're obviously they've got great skill, but uh, they, they seem to focus more on that, uh, that physical side of things, the strength side of things more than maybe the skill side and, and that tends to be where they break down or do, do you run the risk if you focus on a super strength like that uh do you run the risk of sort of not getting to where you want to go um I, i'm not sure it's a risk i think as long as you've sat down and, and considered where do i have my biggest gains to make hmm. And if you if you apportion your time appropriately and and, and 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 reflecting that, then I don't think it's a risk. I think if you feel like you've maximised your strength, for example, and you continue to spend six of your eight sessions a week trying to get stronger, I think that's wasted time. Yeah. yeah. But if you feel like, do you know what? I think in the next six months I can make the biggest gains in my 
ability to recover from a lunge position. So eccentric strength, core stability, core control, and you apportion your training that reflects that, I think that's a sensible way to um, go. And the great thing about squash is being an individual sport, you can do that. It's not like a team sport where you pretty much have to do what everyone else does on the yeah, field. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you can structure your training week in a way that that reflects the priority for you. No, definitely. Um, but but it, it goes back to that earlier point of there is no one way to be good. So maximize what what you what maximize what you're good at, and try not to let other people exploit the areas of your game that are less strong. Yeah. Well, having and, you know that, ha- having said that about Paul and and Joel, I mean both of them have obviously worked on, on the skill elements of their games because they've they've actually improved i've noticed over the last year year and a half they're 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 really contending for that top spot but there's still a bit of a gap there but you know perhaps that that's part of you know the the method to what they're doing right now they're they're just uh edging towards that that uh that higher skill level yeah and i think you know maybe we you know when, when we commentate on sport we are sometimes guilty of of, of perhaps talking down the the, ben- the, the benefits of just being physically strong and physically fit. Mm. You know, it, it, it is a skill in no way more or less beneficial than great technique. Uh, yeah. If you've got a skill in that area, use it, maximize it, make it work for you. Um, but we, we, I think in, in all sports, we tend to find more poetic license in the player who's less physical but more skillful. No, exactly. Yeah. Well, you look you know, look in the past. I mean, guys like uh, like Peter Nickel, uh, David Palmer, uh, very physical, very fit guys, and and they were the the best players in the world. And then you've got others like uh, you know Rami and Jonathan Power and the like. So, yeah, I get, totally agree with you there. Yeah. And the one thing that you know, being as we spoke about before, being physically fit, physically strong, not only does it help you in matches, in games, it helps you recover. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in most sports now, we, we extol the virtues of some type of strength training for, from an injury reduction point of view, but also from a performance point of view. There are very few sports or athletes in sports that won't do some type of strength training. Again, I don't think we're at a position yet where we can say this type of training is best. Probably a little bit of everything can with players find in their own mix, but it's certainly something that... I think all players should think about doing if they aren't doing already. Um, but I say not at the expense of, of the time spent on court perfecting the, the, the shot selection and the shot technique. Brilliant stuff, Neil. Uh, now you mentioned um, uh, to me a little while ago that you're, you're leaving um, the UK and heading to uh, Australia. So um, what bring, what brings you uh, to Australia? Family work? Uh, work. Yes. Yeah, so, um, a really exciting opportunity for for, for, for our family. Um, I've been offered a job. Um, just well, it's in Sydney, but it's to design and and deliver a, a brand new a training centre um, that will that will house a number of different elements related to not just athlete performance but uh, health and well-being for the local population um there are some similarities to the to the facility that i delivered in edinburgh which is called orium um but some differences so it's it's a chance for us to go out there and and hopefully 
make a positive impact on the on the local communities there with, with this new centre uh, and for us a family to experience life down under. So we, we head out at the end of January next year. Brilliant. Well, well good luck with that. not that far away. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Well, I'm glad we got this in uh, before that. And uh, I hope you're, you're going to maintain uh, contact with the, uh, with the squash uh, community. I, I absolutely will. And it's, um, I, I must confess, when I, when I first started working for Scottish Squash, I was intrigued by the sport. Um, and it was probably the, the, the head coach at the time, Roger, who, who kind of sparked my interest and got me thinking about the different ways that, to train the athletes and it's it's been um it's now a sport that i would follow you know i look for the results i, I would watch it if it's on on tv um i don't imagine that will diminish uh, when we move over there and i'll certainly be keeping up to date with the with the scottish athletes and how they're getting on it in the individual and the, and the team competitions as well as those adopted scots who have trained with us over the years Right on. Well, I uh, want to wish you all the best, Neil, with, with the move and uh, good luck uh, developing and building that new facility. And uh, thanks so much for, for doing the podcast and for the research that you've done. I know it's going to, uh, to really help uh, develop the, the game and, and going forward, hopefully uh, you build on that and uh, you see the fruits of your, your labor. Jerry, that's great. Thanks very much for inviting me on as well. Very much appreciated. Well, that's it. 2019 is in the books. Thanks again to Neil uh, Gibson for episode 117. It was a, it was a good one. We're going to use that uh, information and apply it to our uh, training, I hope, for 2020. In fact, I'll probably do that uh, heart rate assessment thing that he was talking about where you do the 4K run uh, at 14 uh, KPH on the treadmill at a 1% uh, gradient right away taking your uh, for four minutes taking your heart rate right after and then 60 seconds later uh, and then log that uh, and see how uh, maybe any new training uh, routines that you develop or at your, your training uh, plan over time tweak it and see if you can uh, improve your recovery rate uh, over the next couple of months and uh, develop your training schedule based on on that um and anyways uh 2020 bodes well i think here for the podcast we have our first uh, episode lined up uh, already january 2nd ashling blake will be on so really looking forward to uh, having her on as the first guest of 2020 she as we know is the uh one of the new faces there at uh, psa squash uh, tv and she does a great job with that with joey and uh, pj they have a really uh, really nice uh, chemistry that they have going on there and we're going to talk to her about that but uh, she obviously has a tremendous backstory herself uh, Irish national champion and uh, we'll get into talking about her her squash uh, her squash story and uh, then how things came about at squash TV and of course with the tournament champions coming up she's going to uh, have some uh, some ideas and in terms of what how that's going to play out so looking forward to that one and then after that we've got several other line others lined up so 2020 bodes well for for uh, another great year here on the in squash podcast everyone thanks for listening happy new year to all of you and uh good luck with your squash in 2020 goodbye now <laughs>